Well, hello, everybody. Before we get into today's episode, which is a doozy, let's talk about a sponsor, the Woodford Group. Do Monday mornings get you down? Are you feeling unmotivated in your current job? Then it is time for a change. Let the team at the Woodford Group help you find your dream job today. With a focus on senior executive, permanent and temp roles within the HR, business support and customer service industries, the dedicated team will help you find success and satisfaction in your new job. Visit woodfordgroup.com.au today. Today's guest is a current serving member of the Victorian Police with 23 years experience on the job. After attending a bad trauma scene in his career, he started to feel the effects of PTSI, which he ignored. The symptoms continued to worsen and a decade later, he crashed and self-hospitalised. After feeling intensely alone in hospital, with the assistance of friends, he founded the registered charity, the Code 9 Foundation. This is his story. Episode 70, Mark Thomas. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in. So bring on the inspiration. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I love it when I said, are you ready to start? Your response was giddy up. I don't think I've ever had a guest that said giddy up as a... Are you a country boy at heart? No, nah, I think I've just watched too much Seinfeld and <laughs> watching Kramer, Kramer all the time, rolling out the giddy ups. <laughs> Is that what you do in your downtime, watch yeah. Seinfeld? Seinfeld. I never, never, never was a Seinfeld fan. I could never get into it. Oh, I've I watched think- it about 15 times over, I reckon. I think I I'm the minority, it. not the majority, <laughs> that's for sure. Well, thank you for coming on because your story is one that unfortunately is very common in regard to PTSI. I like to say the eye is an injury at the yeah. end um, like because of your work within and you're still a member of the Victorian Police Force. Um, so, yeah, uh, please share your story. Where does it all start? How did you get into the police force to start off with? Uh, I always wanted to be, but I wanted to do some other things first. So I was, um, I went through an apprenticeship for a mechanic first. Yeah. So I used to be a grease monkey. Um, wanted to go overseas and play cricket in England for six months. So I did that. And then when I got back from England, I thought, yeah, time, time's right to join. So I joined. Um, and, and it's just that, um, wanting to help people, uh, always been very sort of empathetic, um, sort of nature. So, and, and also the lure of so many different things you can do. Uh, so like being a mechanic, yeah, you're a mechanic. There's not a, there's not a whole lot else you can do. And that's, that's no disrespect to the mechanics of the world. I really enjoyed it when I was doing it. But um, I just like the idea of, A, being able to help people when they need help, but also, you know, the, the whole myriad of things that any police um force around the world offers so um got into that went through the academy and i suppose what's relevant to the conversation we're going to have like going through the academy um we, we touched on the coronial process when um, when a person dies and what, what happens there so we went to the state coronial center and watched an autopsy which i found incredibly interesting there was a couple of bits where i was a Wait. little bit Wait, you do of, that in in the academy? You do that? Yeah, I don't do it anymore. I don't believe, but yeah, certainly when I went through in '96, um, we went and watched an autopsy. This uh, bloke in his sixties, they suspected he died of a heart attack, so they just had to prove that. And um, 
they sure enough showed that one of his arteries in his heart was blocked and there you go, it's proven he died of a heart attack. So, and that's the coroner's job to you know, establish um, how someone um, died. So, um, incredibly fascinating uh, when you see the, the, the inner workings of the human body, you could say. Uh, and, you know, going through the academy, we were exposed to crime scene videos and, and things like that. Um, and I just, I didn't balk at it. It's just like, okay, that's that's part of the job. That's what police do. Um, it didn't overly affect me at all. Uh, and then for the first probably six and a half years or so of my career, I went to, like, you know, most general duties members went to a number of suicides, fatal accidents, drug overdoses, etc. cetera. Um, and do I was they, always fine. Do they train you on how to cope? Like, was there any mental health coping mechanisms that they train you on? Uh, not so much then, but that's like, that's 1996 when I went through and, um, like certainly Victoria police had a, um, psych unit and a, a welfare unit at that stage, but yeah. Yeah, we're we're highly reflective of society and society as a whole. Um, mental health has really only been the last couple of years that it's starting to really gain momentum. I mean, you look at Beyond Blue, Black Dog Institute, Sane, etc. Those wonderful organisations—they've been around for a few years now. But um, I, I think it's only in the last couple, as I just said, that you know stigmas are really starting to be broken down. So I'm talking twenty, you know, twenty-six years ago when I went through the academy, she was wasn't a whole lot going on then. Was there a huge, uh, <clears throat> sorry, was there was a huge fall off rate for people going through the academy seeing that in the training process, like going to an autopsy, I'd imagine there'd be some people that go, this is not the career for me, seeing the crime scene photos, another lot sort of saying not for me. Not that I'd be I've... saying not for me, Mark. I'd be yeah. going, Barley Charlie. <laughs> See you later. Uh, exit stage left. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'd be like a cartoon, you know, running. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the hole There's in the a, wall the in the, the shape. Yeah. <laughs> um, not from my squad, not from my sister squad. Uh, not that I heard of going through the academy. Certainly there's a couple of people who were like, they didn't really enjoy it. But, um, you know, I, I don't, well, that, 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 that's not really the right saying. No one enjoyed it. Um, that, that, that's clear. But some probably took it a little bit more on board than others. Um, I saw it more as a... a, a a fascinating insight into how the human body works, um, having never been studied that kind of um, that that subject before. Uh, so, um, yeah, so like working at Collingwood in the late sort of nineties, early two thousands, that's when the heroin toll and the road toll were matching each other. So it was it was pretty heavy going. Uh, there was you know overdoses every second day. Um, our awesome paramedics managed to get the vast majority of those people back, um, back living. But you know, there, there's a few that, you know, more than a few, unfortunately, that uh, that died through an overdose, and then with high drugs becomes high sort of violence, high suicide rates, things like that. As a police officer, if you come over, uh, come across a overdose, and it may be different from when you started compared to now, but do you guys have any, like, is it Narcan and stuff like that to reverse it? Like, do you have anything on you like that? Or do you just have to simply step back and wait for the paramedics to arrive? Just wait for the paramedics. Really? Yeah. So we, we, we don't, we're not allowed to administer any drugs or anything like that. Mm. And we, we don't carry Narcan. That's, yeah, it's purely paramedics. And, um, 
yeah, well, when that type of job happens, I can't remember, uh, and I'm sure I would, if we got called to something and saw someone that the paramedics just took ages to get there. It just wasn't the case. Um, and look, probably more often than not, it was um, the paramedics calling us to come and give them a hand because when people come out of, um, when they've been Narcan, you know, a percentage of people can get quite violent. Mm. Uh, so that, that that's that's with heroin and back back in those, those days, which you know I, I've been off the street for a few years now, so I don't really know what's how prevalent heroin is anymore. But um, so yeah, so for the first about six and a half years, I, I was good. I felt fine, no worries. It's um, I always thought every deceased person I went to, at the other end of this person is a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, a son, a daughter. Um, etc. So I've got to do everything in my power to make sure their grieving period is um, as if I do my job right, their grieving period is going to be reduced just a smidgen. So they don't have to have any ongoing matters with the police or anything like that, taking statements from them, um, just you know, trying to help them, basically. So I always thought about that until until the 8th of April, 2003, and we got called to, I was working with a great mate, um, Lummy, and we got called to a suicide. It was a type, I won't go into details, but it was a type I hadn't been to before. And um, I looked at the deceased for all of, you know, well, I say the blink of an eye, which according to Google, marvellous Google, is 0.33 of a second. It's the oracle. We can, it's the oracle. Everything that's on Google is actually correct, so we'll go for must it. Must be true. <laughs> It's on the interweb, um, and I felt it physically hit me in the in the chest. Really? So physically, you you actually felt a physical response to physical response to it. Wow! Um, I turned around uh, and I just said, "The lummy, you know, f this, I'm out of here," and I just walked out, um, walked outside. So whoever went in and found the deceased uh, and contacted Triple O, evidently contacted family and friends, so they were starting to turn up. <gasps> So I elected to stay outside and give death messages rather than be back inside dealing with the scene. So, yeah. and like I've spoken to, you know, hundreds of coppers about this over the journey when I've been presenting to them various work units and like giving a death message is by far and away the worst thing um, about policing for me and the vast majority of coppers. You know, I was going to ask you, do they, agree. do they train you on that or is that something that yeah. you learn from more senior coppers yeah we went through um a package in the academy i remember doing that um mm -hmm. but you know going through a training process then actually delivering it um real time uh is it is a very different experience and when you've got knowledge that you know you're about to tell this person and you know you are going to destroy their world it is um an exceptionally difficult and hard thing to do uh but um, for me that day, it was the easier thing to do. So, Is it because when you look at a, at a deceased person using your terminology, um, that although that you mentioned that you could do, if I do my job right, then it will make it a slightly easier process for the family. So you understand that there's loved ones involved. But when you're delivering that death message, the death, no death notice I think was the technical yep. term you used, yep. um, you can see that physical effect and it makes it more real. Is that why they're so yeah. much more tricky? Okay. Yeah. And, and it's just, I mean, 
it, it, it's just that general knowledge that you know, you know, it's very, very few people in the world, if anyone, take the death of a loved one well. Yeah. Um, so you know that, like you don't know the family circumstances and, you know, they mightn't have spoke for 20 years. I don't yeah. know. But um, the vast majority of the time, it, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a, it's a horrible, it's a horrible thing to do. And I, I'm laughing because, um Coppers humour, black humour, and you know, I'm not getting nervous, but my sort of reaction to being when I'm talking about this kind of stuff is to is to giggle a little yeah. bit and, and things I like that. that. So, um, so yeah, I, I went outside and um, and then you know, Lummy cleared the scene, and the undertakers come along and took the seats to the coroner's court again. What I was talking about before. And then we went back to the station. We did the associated paperwork, which we've got to do. This one, you know, again, I don't want to sound flippant about it, but it's reasonably sort of straightforward what we had to do. And then just got on, finished the shift, and and, and that was basically it. And that's that, that's probably where, um, not probably, that is precisely where I made a, you know, like a monumental mistake. Um, but I, I put the caveat on that in that I was in, very, very naive to mental health and completely uneducated. And I, I put my hand up and I say, I think it was Jonathan Hay who used to play footy for North Melbourne and he walked away from the game because he had depression. I, I still remember talking to my dad and saying, geez, what's he got to be depressed about? Um, which is, you know, I look back on that now. like oh, Such a naive comment, but you don't know. Naive... Unless you've lived it, you don't know, yeah. Exactly. And... Um, yeah, you know, like if someone said that to me these days, I would speak to them and I'd educate them. Yeah. Uh, but if they after that, if they still said, "Yeah, no, you're still weak," I'd go, "Yeah, whatever, mate," and I'd walk away because yeah. some people you just can't get through to. So essentially, I just did nothing about it. So what year was this? Two thousand six. Two thousand and three. Three, okay. And when you said, when you said I made a monumental. Two th- monumental mistake. Two things that struck me in that: a, you just went on to the rest of your shift as per normal, which I take it even today is probably a normal thing for the coppers to do. Yeah. And two, okay, you didn't do anything anything about it. Okay. I'll ask you about how they do things different now uh, later. I don't want to sort yeah. of muddy the waters yet. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, um, over the course of the next 10 years, basically my, um, symptoms gradually rose. So that day and going back to how you first described it, I was seriously injured on that day. I just didn't know it and I didn't, and we don't spill any blood because you can't see it because it's a brain injury. So yeah, I... Uh, not so much early on, but well, look, the, the first real symptom I can, two things that really stick out. So I don't know, six or eight months later or so, I got my first detective position and the whole, you know, six and a half, well, seven, seven and a half years that I was working, I wanted to become a detective. That was it. What, and, what does it... Is that the designate? Oh, I was speaking to another copper and he was telling me about the difference between designation and whatever, and I've forgotten what it is. So, when you're a detective, what area of police work were you in? What unit? Uh, I went, I, my first spot was in a place that no longer exists, but the tactical response squad. So, we would respond to kidnappings and extortions and 
blackmails and things like that. Yeah. Now, 99.9% of the time, so when you're in uniform, your police badge, the background colour is blue. Yeah. But when you become a um, detective, it's yellow. And everyone, it's all about getting the yellow Freddy. Okay. That's a bit of police terminology for Yellow Freddy, okay. Yellow Freddy. Oh, I'm learning all the lingo. (laughs) (laughs) So... For me, it wasn't about getting the yellow Freddy. It was going to a work unit that doesn't have to deal with trauma. You were having to deal with trauma in technical response? No. So, yeah, the name the name of that work unit was a little bit misleading. So it was responding to, yeah, so like kidnappings and things like that. So, But you don't get called to deceased persons. You don't get called to um, serious assaults and things like that. That's interesting because I would have thought, okay, well, you may be responding to a kidnapping, but that could seriously not end up how you desire it to end up, i.e. the person that's kidnapped walking away. True. But the if we were investigating a kidnap and something terrible happened to that person, it's not us that goes into the crime scene. That's major crime scene. So I don't have to go into the scene to okay. look. So... The best part about becoming a detective, I don't have to deal with trauma anymore, so really? which was good. And then after a few more months, when you become a detective, you go to detective training school, so you go back to school. So it, it's basically they go into um, a lot, like we, you go through a lot of legislation and things like that whilst going through the academy, learning law. But so for when you become a detective, you go into certain parts of law very deeply and look at the case law and examples and and going through dds this this acronym for it uh the coronial process is a lot more involved so off to the coroner's court we go again now the autopsy that i watched during the academy i was front row i'm not missing this i'm I'm, i really want to see this the autopsy i watched at dds i sat in the back row and looked at my shoes for 40 minutes so I was not looking at the person that was having the procedure performed. But do not you have, a chance. What's the point of having a what's a what's the point of having a police officer there if you've got a medical I mean you guys aren't medical experts. So no. why can't the coroner just give their medical opinion on paper in a report and then you guys read that? Why do you physically have to be in a room while someone's getting autopsy? Well, I know the um, when there is, let's say there's a murder, a member of the homicide squad has to go and watch the autopsy. Okay, now, but you weren't I, in homicide though. No, no, but, but it's all part of the coronial process and to get an understanding of the process, you basically go through the whole thing. So I'm not sure of the... the um, there's a chain the, of evidence o- sort idea of the thing well. behind it sort of, sort of reasoning, yeah. but... That's what it was in 2004 when I went through DDS. Now, okay. I don't know wh- wh- whether that's still the same or not. I don't know. But that's like, actually, so that's that was April, May. So it was about 12 months after I, was, I, I went to that, um, after the suicide, I went to my triggering event. So, so like, to me, I look back at now, look, if someone come to me and said, Mark, can I have a chat? Yeah, mate, no worries. And they said that to me. What I went through, I'd say, dude, you've got some bad juju in your brain. Yeah. You need to go speak to a psych because that's clearly you are reacting to an event that you're probably – there's no problem reacting to things like that because, you know, 
it's different. It's completely out of the normal. Um, but you're reacting in such a way that's probably indicating something's wrong. So oh, I know that now. You've got a bit more experience under the belt now and yeah. having been through the whole journey that I have. So, um, did, did you in yourself know something wasn't quite right? Did you did you sort of sit there and go, why am I not looking at this? I'm looking at my shoes. Last time I attended one of these, I was, you know, a lot more ah, enthusiastic. That's where it gets really interesting. And, like, I find my whole journey just incredibly um, fascinating. Certainly don't recommend going through it. Mm. But um, so, like, I, I was never um, and still – um, I'm not the world's greatest copper, but I'm certainly not the world's worst. So how I didn't pick up on that, and the answer to your question is no, I didn't. I think sometimes also it can be a self-protection thing from, from ourselves, like the brain doesn't want to connect. Yeah, yep. Connect as an issue because it's in self-preservation mode to some, yep. this is my non-medical two cents. Yeah, and I, well, just a what I would talk about later, but I'll jump into it now, disassociation. Yeah. Like, to me, like I did that, and that to me was by far the worst uh, symptom that, that that I had. I've spoken to other people who love it. They reckon it's great. Out-of-body experience, protect, and, and like uh, evidently I was told by a psych that that's your brain protecting you. Yeah. Oh, that was hell for me. But again, that's the brain doing brain things. Mm-hmm. So, but like, yeah, I, I just didn't recognize and like over the journey, so going through, you know, uh, geez, what, what else? Like losing the, um, you know, those classical depression symptoms where I used to go to work when we were working at St Kilda Road and I'd run the tan nearly every morning. Yeah. And then sort of in the, um, you know, nine, ten area, I started to, I don't really want to be doing this anymore. Um, and I just couldn't be bothered. Um, the expectations I had on myself just skyrocketed it incredibly. So like if you made a mistake, I'd go, hey, you're human. You're going to make it blue. It's all right. Let's learn from it. Do some education. Don't do it again. Sweet. You're human. You're not a robot. But if I made the same mistake, I'd kick the living shit out of myself. Um uh, I used to love getting on packed trains and trams just to see how people react when they're taken out of their comfort zone. Like but sardine, the, sardine. Yeah, pack. yeah. Okay. So I never had a problem with that because I always found it, yeah, as I was saying, like a fascinating people watching experience. Yeah. But then I started when I would hop on one of those trains, my body would heat up and I'd get really uncomfortable. I now know that was anxiety. So have a little anxiety attack. So my first sign I'm getting anxious is my body heats up. So my body knows before my brain does. So, and look, if you're going to have a, if you're going to have anxiety, it's not a bad one to have. So I'll be doing whatever and I'll be starting to heat up. I could be outside of something and I know now, stop what I'm doing and then I can work out what's wigging me out. And then I can take the steps to bring myself back down to planet earth. So um loss of self-worth just started thinking you're no good you know shit dad shit copper shit husband shit son shit brother and like there's no 
there's no truth to those matters. There's no um, there's no evidence um, that. But that was the narration that was going on in your head. That's my head telling me. Um, and this was all around this two thousand and four time. The second. So, so autopsy. yeah, that's, that's probably more the the mid two thousand mid two thousands. Okay. And then um, I I got promoted to sergeant in the city. In still at 20- the tactical response. Uh, this is after that, so I left okay. there. So I went to Melbourne East uh, as a sergeant, uniform sergeant. Where Melbourne? Uh, you're in Knox or something, are you? No, nah, in the city. Okay. In the CBD. Yep. And I started to find where when I was out as a patrol sergeant, my body was constantly hot. So I was just constantly anxious because if you're the patrol sergeant, so if a trauma scene comes up or something serious, you have to go to it. And I was constantly on edge. So my hypervigilance is now starting to grow quite significantly. Yeah. Uh, I'm constantly anxious uh, without knowing it. Mm. And then when I'd get inside and finish a shift, it was just like, oh, thank God for that. And I'm still not recognizing what's going on. Um, and I remember coming one day and one of the sergeants I was relieving had a morning where he had three separate deceased people to go to. Oh, my goodness. And I just... That's a shit morning. I, I just... I, I felt horrible. I just couldn't believe like that I had... I didn't feel horrible for him. I felt horrible in that I just dodged a massive bullet. Yeah. Because it's just no way I could have done it. Um, and just... Yeah, just the climbing symptoms like playing cricket. I'm thinking I'm useless. I'm no good. I'm going to get dropped, which was never going to happen. But again, that's the narration in my brain. And then in 2012, I um, I got a detective sergeant spot. So again, I got back to the yellow Freddy. Uh, but detective sergeant spots are a lot harder to get than detective senior constable positions. Uh, I, I don't know the difference. Enough. You're going to have to explain the difference to me. So um, the rank structure, you come out of the, well, in my day, you come out of the academy as a constable. Yeah. And then the next rank up is a senior constable. Yeah. And the next rank up is a sergeant. Right. And and with that, you can also have a detective senior constable and a detective sergeant. Right. So I, uh, again, it wasn't celebrating becoming a detective sergeant, it was celebrating, this is cool, I don't have to deal with trauma anymore. So I was going to Crime Stoppers inside, away from the street. Okay. Is Crime Stoppers really anonymous? It is. If you do not wish. I, I just think it's, yeah, I'm, I don't know. I think it's bullshit yep. that it's anonymous. No, nah, I can tell you that you can ring up and you can give information and if you don't want to give your name, you don't have to give your name. But does it register your phone number that you're ringing from? No, no caller ID. So Nil do we none. have to set no caller ID or does it automatically no. come through as an anonymous? Automatically. Okay. So it's safe to do. Okay. I can guarantee you. All right. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> Thousands wouldn't, true. but I'll take your word for yeah, it. No, nah, no, nah, I'll get true. I worked there for five years. Okay. So, um, so, yeah, then I was inside and then it was probably around that early 2012 where the symptoms started to escalate uh, and I was fine at work. So you still didn't know this was what's going on? Did you, had you started saying something's not right? No. 
Were you aware that you were more being more hyper vigilant on the when you're on the street in your previous role? No. So right. I know I was now because yeah. I know the hindsight, feelings and I know the back. thoughts. Oh, hindsight's a beautiful thing. Isn't it? Um and then uh I went to Nepal in September twenty twelve. Bucket list item. Uh, had always wanted to be go there and check the uh, base pick, camp. Uh, no, Annapurna Circuit. Okay, I don't know what that was, is, but okay. Uh, it's a brilliant circuit, and you you cross over the Thorong La Pass, which is at five thousand four hundred and sixteen. But when I got to uh, day three of the trek, so I'm nestled in the Himalayas with these snow-capped mountains, this raging river, uh, just incredibly beautiful, serene place, I'm in my room crying. And I had no idea why. And I spoke to somebody else about this the other day and he explained to me that with PTSI, sometimes the tears will flow but you don't necessarily feel the emotion behind it. It's like a tap you just can't turn off turn off the Correct. tears. Was that were you feeling the emotion, or was it just this physical response that you had? Physical response, but I just I, I was uh, lost. Yeah, that that that's basically what, what I can say. I knew exactly where I was on a map, but I was just lost. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what am I doing uh, in my life. What am I where, doing? Yeah, you know the brain narratives are starting to escalate. But you know, being being an Aussie bloke. She'll be right, mate. Push on. You'll be okay. I don't even know if that's an Aussie bloke thing. It's a very Aussie thing. Yeah. And I think it's worse in men. Yeah, but absolutely. But women, women certainly have it too. Yeah. Just calling you out on that, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, we, we, us, us men, we, you know, like so many of us, you know, we hunt, we make fire. Yeah. You know, we're tough. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. Um. And then I did, I pushed through and I pushed and there was a few more nights of tears and I just didn't care about where I was. Um, and I just felt like I had to do it um, because I just felt like, oh, well, maybe I've got to do it. And then I got to about 4,000 metres, a place called Yakkaka and um, had my first proper, heavy, full-on blown anxiety attack. And I thought I was going to die and I was the policing brain in me thought, how the hell are going to get my body from here back to Australia? I've left me two kids, my wife, my family, brother, dad, all of that. Um, but the trek leader calmed me down and then the next day I, I did a Yui and walked back. Um, so you're not walking. Hang sorry. on, before you, what were you, when you're saying you had your full-on anxiety attack, what did, how did that manifest itself? I remember sitting in bed uh, in this because it, it was cold and I thought, oh, I'll just lie in bed for a while. And then the brain just started sort of spinning and the body heated up um, and I just, it's, it's hard to describe. I just, I couldn't stop um, this feeling of dread. Uh, the, yeah, the brain washing around like on spin cycle. Um, felt like shaking, uh, sweating profusely because I was that hot. I was like fantastic four dude who just flames on. Um, and then just the the dread of 
I'm going to die here. And I was, I was saying, get the helicopter, get the helicopter. I'm about to die. How did the uh, expedition leader know that it was a panic attack and not some form of altitude sickness or something else that was going on? Sat next to me. Right. Put his hand very gently on my shoulder and said, breathe. And I'm going, and by, I'm sort of hyperventilating a bit. He goes, slow it down, slow it down, breathe with me. And then I slowed the breathing down, and then it, 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 he's a magician. Then it, it just calmed me right down. Um, so that's like learning to breathe. It's, people go, what the hell are you talking about? I've been breathing since I was born. Yeah, no, you, it's you, very you, different. You're not conscious. You're con- not consciously breathing. Yeah, you're automatic. Consciously breathe. Was he so, Nepalese? Yeah, mm. yeah. So I reckon he would have seen it before, uh, because he just. Uh, and then once I settled down, he goes, "Do you think you should go on?" I said, "No." He goes, "That's all right. I'll cut loose whatever the porter's name was tomorrow, and he'll take you back to Kathmandu." So thanks. So. But so we ended up walking about a hundred k's in two days. But about I don't know, ten k's into the walk back, I developed this huge blister on the bottom of my foot, which was a godsend because it was very, very painful physically. So, so that was your focus. That was my focus, and it took away the mental pain. Right. Um, and I remember saying all the way back until I got back to Kathmandu, and then on the plane back here. As soon as I get home, I'm booking in to see a psych. Something's not right here. Here's mistake number two. Um, oh, well, back. I thought that would be the best <laughs> thing that you could have done. Yeah, but I didn't book in. Oh, I'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> and this scary. went on and on. It's yeah. scary, yeah. And I just, again, it's just like I, I look back. I, I don't look back and get shitty with it. It's just it is what it is. I didn't recognize it, and I just kept putting it off. And then the symptoms just went through the roof, just like the absolute through the roof, just escalated huge. How did it escalate? Uh, I could get on a tram with a little old granny and she was a massive threat. Right. Everyone was a threat. I was constantly on edge. I wasn't sleeping. Oh, so there's another one. The sleep patterns throughout the whole time were up and down like a yo-yo, but I just said, well, I'm a, I'm a shift worker. Shift but workers don't have good sleep But that's interesting because patterns. if you're policing like that and you're dealing with the general public, and I'm saying this as a blanket, blanket statement, that if you've got police officers out there that aren't recognising this, that look, this is a symptom of PTSI and that you're at a heightened threat level and if, if a little old granny is a threat to you, it potentially means that you're then overreacting to situations and escalating, not de-escalating situations mm. in terms of general officers out there, which is a so scary thing. Where I am, though, very, very few people would allow themselves to get to where I was at this stage. Right. So th- this is about your Christmas, early January 2013. Right. And then in mid-February 2013, I... Um, Ironically, I was at a health and safety wellbeing day uh, between a couple of our commands and what the psych was up there and he's talking, he had a slide up there which um, was talking about suicide, depression, anxiety and PTSD slash I. Uh, and I, I distinctly remember Jay saying, don't worry if you're ticking a box or two, everyone does. 
And I was sitting in the front row thinking, I'm Shit, I'm ticking every box. Every box, yeah. Every box. <laughs> How many boxes were up there? Plenty. Mm, <laughs> so enough. I, I, I can't remember what the wording was on it, but it, and, and at that that stage, and this is what, what, what I was saying before, like I am, um, you know, at the peak of it. Like I, I, I'm just not functioning. Like I could sit there and type and do work. Yeah. But I was on autopilot and, you know, like these days uh, I'd be very, very surprised if any, you know, member of Victoria Police or probably any Victoria MFB, whoever, whatever first responder agency with the amount of education and knowledge people have now would allow themselves to get to such an extent. Did um, any of your colleagues sort of pull you aside and say, mate, you're not right? No, because I didn't. So you mastered it that well that I mastered it, but not knowingly mastered it. Right. So I know of people who they've mastered deliberately, but I, I at well at that stage after that slide, I've gone. I'm in a world of trouble here. I'm in a uh, hmm, trouble. So I actually left and booked in to see the site, which was the following Monday at three o'clock. Okay, so is this a is this a police force psych or is this a private psych? Uh police force psych. Wow, you went so, okay, that's yeah. That's a big call. Okay. So um yeah, one of our so we've got the um external uh assistance program, so the EAP. Okay. Uh so we've got psychs within Victoria Police and then the EA program uh, we can ring the welfare unit, which is what I did, and they put us onto a a psych that's um, contracted to Victoria Police. Mm-hmm. And then there's also two other um, businesses that you can ring and get go through them, and they um, they bill Victoria Police, but don't say who it's for. So it's all it's all protected. Like no one will find out for those people who don't want the job to find out. Okay, because that's a very important if that's a very important point. If anyone, if any mem- members of the police force are hearing this, in terms of that, there are ways of that you don't want your work to find yeah. out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because and I think that's, that's the concern, isn't it? You, if as soon as you yeah, put your hand absolutely. up, work's going to find out, and I'm going to be out of a job, and yeah, yeah. And when you are this badly injured, your brain isn't thinking straight, so it can become a very real. Um, you know, uh, idea in your head that you'll sell to yourself that if anyone finds out, you'll get sacked, which is just not, doesn't happen. And again, going back to what I was saying before, we're very reflective of society. And I know there's, I've got mates that work in, you know, some very high end um, private industry businesses and they've got the same thing. They've got people in there who won't tell their work that they're struggling because they're worried about what will happen to their employment. Yeah. Which is unfortunate, but again, we're moving into an area now where hopefully those kind of days are in the past. But it's true though because I don't know now, but it used to be you didn't ever want to go on work cover because you had to disclose that to your next employer in the Mm. recruitment process Um, and you knew even as a recruiter, you like a business didn't want to, when I was in recruitment, you knew that a business didn't want to take somebody on that had a work cover issue. Yeah. Didn't know that. You had to eat. So I've been employed for 26 years, so I haven't put yeah. in for a job outside yeah. of that. It did change. I think that they stopped. 
um, the legislation came in that they you didn't have to disclose it legally. Yeah. But a lot of people, just say if it was a shoulder injury, well, companies wanted to know what level of shoulder injury it was. So if you injured it again, they only were, from a worker's comp point of view, only yeah. responsible up to getting it was when you were pre-employed. Yeah. If that makes sense. So that's, and, that was yeah. the reason why. And look, that's I can understand that. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, it's, and also our association, our, our union police association, they've got their sites as well. So there's, there are a number of options, sort of one, two, three, four, four different options you can, that you can go through. So you take your choice. And there's also the choice that you don't tell Victoria Police at all, but you, you go to a site that you get by privately. yourself. Yeah. Privately. So, but then no, you're paying the, for it. Then you're paying for it. Yeah. So, um, so there's all those options there. Um, so yeah, over the next, so that was a Wednesday, and over the next, um, so Thursday, Friday, Saturday, was just a downhill. I won't say slide. I'd say a free fall. <laughs> it was just, it was like my brain had made the decision. Okay, mate, ten years, that's enough. You haven't recognised it. Well, here you go, cop this. So it was basically that day in April 2003 that started chipping away my resilience. And by the time the 10th of February 2013 came along, I was out of resilience. No resilience, um, no self-worth, which that is one hell of a frightening place to live when you haven't got any self-worth. Um and it's just you are walking, talking, but, well, put it the old cliche, the lights are on, no one's home. And I think there's a very important distinction to make between self-esteem and self-worth. Yes. Yeah. How would so, you describe the difference between the two? Well, self-worth is, to me, is what makes you, you. Uh, and self-esteem to me is around the how you sort of more value yourself. You know, I'm more than happy to be corrected. Okay. No, it's your personal definition. So yeah. yeah. So like I know, um, so at that time, I knew I was still doing my job pretty good. Yeah. I was going along all right, getting everything done, doing all my jobs, no worries. Did I value myself? Zero. So... I I think the way that I would define it is self-worth is more how you feel about yourself and self-esteem is more how you project that on, like out to the world in terms yeah. of there's that, def- yeah. I don't know. It's hard to describe. Yeah. There's difference, people. There's a difference. I'm going to have to <laughs> dive into magical Google later on and see, see what's going on. Yeah, just don't go to really Wikipedia, Jesus. <laughs> Oh, no. It's a nightmare. <laughs> Back in my um, day, it was all like hard copy encyclopedias. Yeah. We had to reference, you know. Yes. Yeah, um, pre-internet. And then um, on the Sunday, Sunday night, I actually worked voluntary duties at the cricket on the Sunday. It was Australia and the West Indies. And, like, I've played cricket my whole life. It's my favourite sport. And I was working at the cricket, getting paid to watch cricket, and I was sitting on the boundary doing it. Like, could there be a more perfect shift? And I hated it. I was hating, well, everything. I was. I hated myself. I was hating life. Yeah. So 
a game of cricket certainly wasn't going to change that. And then when I got home that night, I got home probably about 11.30, um, did whatever, I went to bed, I know, 11, 11.50, whatever. I turned the light out at 11.57, sorry, at 11.55. And at 11.57, I reached for my phone uh, because I had a my what my first treater said was a catastrophic loss of self. So sounds very technical. Does. Um, but it is uh, I I don't like the words a breakdown. I I don't but I can't that's the words that people most resonate with what I'm trying to describe what happened. Okay. So basically massive anxiety attack. Uh so no, up. A, a Nepal equivalent? Yeah. Yeah. Your wife prob- is bes- pro- she's beside me. She has no idea what's going on. So she's she's had no idea this whole time. She's not seen any changes nah. in you at all. No. Nah. She right. did say a couple of times though, you should go and speak to someone about your sleep patterns. They're not healthy. Uh, it's all right, I'm a shift worker. So I have got the white flag up. Yeah. Yes. You were right. I was wrong. Okay. I've got no problem with that one. I, that, that is absolutely correct on her behalf. Um, so I and then my normal human brain, the way I describe it, shut down. My policing brain kicked in, which was very, very good because it made a really good, healthy decision, getting my phone, unlocking it, going to welfare, giving it to Karen and saying, ring welfare something's not right. Um, so she rang welfare, spoke to there, was put onto the on-call psych. Um, she spoke to the on-call psych. Then um, then I did the, passed the phone to me. And I was asked in a nice way, what are we going to do with you? Um, I know it can, that can be construed either way, but it was, it was a nice, it was a nice way of asking it. And my reply was, if I'm a copper and I come here and speak to me, I'm going to hospital and I just made that decision. So um, I hospitalized myself because it um, suicide was never an option, but I didn't care at that stage whether I lived or died. Um, so let's get the safety and hospital is safety in my mind at that stage. So so uh, hang on, I just want to take you back. Yep. So you went, to, you went to bed, turned the lights off, and within two minutes you – were reaching for your phone saying something's wrong. Yeah. So handing that, it to your wife and saying help. That um that moment where I just uh everything just well it got it, it burst. Put it that way. Right. So I'd been it'd been bubbling, bubbling, bubbling for a decade. Yeah. And then bang. It's time so, to burst. You can't hold this any longer. So what did that look like though? Because if I'm your wife and you're just handing the phone going, speak to welfare, something's not right. I'm like, what, what's wrong with, like, what's what's wrong? Yeah. So I can speak to So them. sitting there shaking, curled up, um, emotional, hot right. with anxiety, sweating. Um, and I remember saying, I can't cope. Right. And I don't know what I meant by that because it was a lot more about can't cope because, I, you know, for all intents and purposes, everyone was seeing, I was coping quite fine. Right. Um, and it was only really, as as Karen said, your sleep pattern. So that, that was the only real thing. So my mind at that stage leading up to that is I have to protect my kids from this. This is from Wednesday. I knew something wrong was wrong on Wednesday. 
I've got to protect my kids from this. And they were like three and five at the time. So I got no problem with that decision. That was the right decision to make. But I also, my brain was also telling me, you have to protect your wife from this. She cannot know what's going on for the right reasons. I need to protect her, not protect me, protect her. Was it because you thought that she couldn't cope with it or was it because you didn't want to show that level of weak, what you perceived as weakness, uh, which it's not? Yeah, I certainly didn't see it as a weakness. I never have. Um, But, and I certainly, no, I didn't think she needed to be protected from it because she couldn't handle it. It's just, I, I don't know why that decision was made. Um, it was only with a, you know, a, a seriously injured brain that made that decision, which okay. makes zero sense because she should have been the first person, you know, in probably in two, two thousand and three. Okay. You know, like that's. But I think also, what line of, does she work? What line of work is she in? Yeah, she owns her own beauty therapy business. Okay. So if anyone needs any beauty therapy, then. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to plug it. But it's just, it's more, um, I suppose, if you've gone down the policing path and you're seeing probably the worst of society the majority of the time, you probably don't want to bring that home and, and then put that on her. Yeah, so I kind of understand that wanting to protect her from that and then not discussing your day with her. I mean, she probably doesn't want to know how many dead bodies you've seen and, yeah. you know, like I, I get that. I wouldn't want to know. But it's just, yeah, this this decision, and I've never, and I've, I've discussed it with clinicians over the years, my psychs, and hey, it was a decision that was made at the time by yeah. a brain that wasn't capable of making a decent decision. So yeah. I don't lose any sleep over it. I don't look back, oh, all right, well, yeah. it is what it is. I can't do anything about it now. And yeah, I use that as an education point when I'm when I'm presenting, when I'm speaking. Yeah. I said, hey, you know, you you've got to fight through those thoughts that you need to protect people from because it's it's incorrect. They're the people that can help you. So when you've handed her the phone, she's physically able to see that something's wrong. You're curled up in a ball, you're sweating, you're saying, I can't cope. So she's physically able to see that that something was terribly not quite right. Okay. Yeah. So then I um, I was picked up by um, another copper, a senior sergeant who was working up the road, and he took me to Footscray Emergency, and I I sat in there the first night and then – my brother come up from Geelong to look after the kids and then Karen come to the hospital and like just distinct, like, I don't know what, I don't want to say the thousand yard stare because, but it's kind of like, yeah, she could have knocked on my head. Hello, yeah. anyone home? And, yeah. and then the second night, uh, had in Footscray short stay. Um, and then I went down to Geelong clinic for a, for a week and a half or so, just, a um, well, when I arrived there, which is a, you know, a private mental health clinic. How long were you in hospital for before you went to the mental health clinic? Two nights. And what is that like when you're in for a psych? Is it a psych hold? Uh, at that stage, I don't know whether I would have been allowed to leave or not. I don't think I would have been allowed to. So even though I admitted myself, yeah, I don't think they would have let me leave. So... When you're saying you had a thousand yard stare, I suppose I'm trying to understand what what did the hospital do to treat you in that first 48 hours before you went to the like did they just dose you up so you weren't going to harm yourself and therefore then send you off to the clinician or did they have psychs come in and start talking to you like what was the process of the uh, there was no medication um, I didn't want any at that stage 
the first night was basically just sitting on a on a, a stretcher type bed sort of thing. Um, if you can imagine, I don't know. Uh, I think because having run a few marathons, I've seen people at the end, end of a marathon just collapse, and they just cannot move for a fair while. It's like that, but in a mental sense. So yeah. I've been doing this all the time. And then when the bubble burst, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't do anything. I was just lying on this bed, just motionless. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking. I wasn't, I was just, I was just blank. And then numb. numb. Yeah. It's probably good work. So I had disassociated. If disassociation was an Olympic sport, phew, I am a gold medalist and world champion at the same time. <laughs> like it, it was, um, and it's just the second second day and night was a little bit more clearer. Then I started to the policing brain really kicked in and gone. Okay, well this makes sense. That makes sense. I had a fair idea that um, I wasn't diagnosed at that stage. A psych did come in if I remember right and have a quick chat, but certainly wasn't a treatment chat. It was probably just a, an assessment type setup. And I'm thinking, I reckon I've got PTSD. I reckon that's anxiety and I reckon I've got depression. So you you actually self-diagnosed all that? Well, I, that's what I was thinking was on the cards. Yeah. Um, and then while I was in Footscray, the welfare unit and psych unit were looking for a bed for me at a clinic um, found one in Geelong. My family's in Geelong, so I thought, yeah, that's cool. So I went down there and admitted, and then shortly thereafter, here's your room, drop your bags, come and have a chat. Right. So I sat down with um, my first actual clinician, full-time one. How do you get um, there? Did your family take you or did um, you get transported? Brother, brother, uh, brother okay. drove me down. So had to give an undertaking that you will take him here. Yep, right. I'll take him there. Yeah. Um, or else it would have been back in an ambulance and or Yeah, whatever. I just wondered if you weren't allowed to leave on your own for the forty eight hours, how you were then yeah. allowed how you trans okay. Yeah. Um and at at this stage I I didn't I wasn't disrespectful to the psych industry, but I didn't know much about it and yeah. I uh, can they do that much? And by this time, I haven't slept for a few days. And really? I thought what would be a really good idea? Let's have a can of Red Bull on the way to Geelong. Oh, no. So I get to Geelong. I'm in the clinic, and then I'm sitting before this professor and the um, the first psychiatrist, and I am Pulp Fiction. I'm telling a bit of this story, then a bit of that story, back to this story, and I'll start another one. I am racing, and within 15 minutes – he, the professor, had my personality, what happened to me, picked apart to a T. And I've gone, respect. And I remember saying, so what have I got? He goes, yeah, PTSD, depression, anxiety. He said, you'll be fine. And he said, make no mistake though, you are not going to get fixed here. You're only here to let the dust settle. Your real treatment will begin when you're out of here. Okay, cool. But what a reassurance, though, for to hear that you will be fine. Like when you're oh, yeah. in this state of despair, really, like what's yeah. happening to me, yeah. to hear those words must have just sort of calmed you initially. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah that, that was good to hear. But I tell you, it, walking into a room, I spent one night in a room with some other dude who was coming off meds and he was having a real bad time. And, of course, this is all new to me. Yeah. And then they shifted me to another room, a single room, and I walked in and straight away I'm looking around. I go, huh. Nothing to hang yourself on. Nothing to hang yourself on. <laughs> and then I walk into the bathroom and I just grab the towel rack and I push down on it and it just pushes out. Yeah. That that was enormously <laughs> confronting. Yeah. Um, uh, the reason and, why I know that is that um, I worked with some people that actually designed facilities like that. Mm. And so I had never considered it. And they walked me through one of the facilities um, because I was there consulting for something and they were like, have like pointing this out and I was like, hi, this is a different world. I never considered it. It is. Yeah. Very, very different world. Um, enormously confronting, but I, I took the stance at that stage. Well, this is the best place for me. I need to be here. Mm. So, um, yeah, I can have visitors, family visited, Karen brought the kids down. Well, not for the first couple of days, but another story coming up. But, you know, I'd go in to a psych session. So I'll have them, you know, every day. And my first trader said, geez, you're strange, which is exactly what I wanted to hear when I'm locked up in a psych home. Um, Are you serious? They said that to yeah, you, you're yeah. And I've looked at it and she goes, but in a good way. I've gone, yeah. <laughs> it's such a backhanded compliment when I people know. say that to you. I get it on a teacher's strange, but it's good strange. It's what a good the way. fuck does that mean? Because <laughs> she goes, the people who sit in that seat, I can't get them to talk. I can't get you to shut up. And I go, oh, it's a good thing, isn't it? And she yeah. goes, yes, it is. And I worked out really early, and this is where I am very, very exceptionally grateful in that for some reason I'm built to talk about it and I'm happy to do it. And I just I worked it out really early that the more I talk, the better I feel. And at this stage, I'm feeling entirely shit out. So if I can feel a little bit less shit out, well, then that's a, that's a huge bonus. So, um, and then... Yeah, you know, for those people who haven't been locked up in a psycho, um, and again, I'm making light of it. It was the perfect place for me at the time. I do obviously take it very seriously. We we uh, can put humour in term into heavy topics on the podcast, yes, so that is yes. fine. Can't be all doom and gloom. You've got to put a little bit of silver lining on things. And the um, we we had three one hour sort of sessions throughout the day. Some, some like a dietitian would be there and they'd speak to you about the importance of diet in relation to your mental health. And then someone who's a good, you know, knows about exercise and the exercise impacts on exercise. And we had one one day on mindfulness and it was the first time I'd ever heard it. And she said, you know, you can look at this, you can look at that. Um, a really good one is jump in the shower and either have a pure cold shower or have a hot shower. Not so you're going to scold yourself. Just let the water hit the back of your neck and concentrate on the water and it'll help ground you. Cool. Okay, I can do that. I don't mind a shower. And then it got to the Friday. So I'd been in hospital nearly a week at Geelong. And I felt myself going further downhill. And I, always, I thought I'd already sort of bottomed out, to use that terminology. But then I thought, oh, I'm feeling worse here and starting to feel really bad. And I thought, aha, mindfulness. I'm going to give this a crack. 
So my first experience of mindfulness was a, a blazing failure, but I'm a huge soot for cold water, so there's no chance I was having a cold shower. So I thought <laughs> hot shower, I love a hot shower. Yeah. But it's a psych clinic. They haven't got hot water. It was lukewarm at best. And mm. that's for a reason because so people don't self-harm. So with that, I kept going down and down and, and the mood just dropped considerably. Uh, and I ended up sitting on the floor sort of, um, you know, knees up to the chest. Wasn't crying. I was past crying, past like the, I can't, I don't have the words to describe the mental pain. Um, so not uh, numb. You were full in, full pain, anguish at this. Okay. Pain, absolute pain. And it was at that point um it's one of the most powerful emotions i've ever felt was that i know why people suicide because yes you know that there's medications and treatment and things like that but if you're you know medication resistant which some people are if you're treatment resistant which some people are it is not sustainable to live in such pain you, you just could you could not do it um i i I presented a couple of weeks ago to um, some people at my command and I sat there for a while and I kind of went quiet and I, I just, I, I kind of got lost within myself. I said, sorry, I, I'm still trying to think of words that would adequately describe the mental pain. Um, and I said, the best I can do, if you had to come along and said, I'm going to give you this pill, it's going to take that mental pain away but I've got to snap both bones in your lower leg. I'd go snap the leg, no worries, instant choice. Um, and I'm not going to give you any medication for that. So it, it's just, um, yeah, I can't describe it. So there'll be people out there that listen to it that know exactly what I'm talking about. And I've spoken to people who know it. And it just sounds no like one... you were at your wit's end, like absolute despair. Like I just yeah, turn it 100%. off, like just, yeah, make it stop, yeah. So it took me... Um, Took me ten minutes to stand up, get dressed, and call a nurse. Uh, and you know, like ten minutes is is a bloody long time. Mm. And then I hopped in bed. Uh, you know, I rang the bell, and she walked in, and she looked at me. She had, and then she had this big grin on her face. You don't look so well. The smile was perfect. Like I, from the word go, don't feel sorry for me. I don't want cuddles. I just want to be told what to do to recover. Yeah, so, practical advice. Um, practical advice. Yeah. And she come, she sat on the edge of the bed. She said, look, I know you're not on any medication. I know you don't want it, but can I give you a Valium? It's a muscle relaxant. It's not psychedelic or anything like that. And I I don't care what she offered me. I said, yeah, give it to me. So and I, I, she could offer me anything. I would have said yes. Um and then she come in, she give me a Valium. Austin Powers was on TV, gold member. And I remember, and another very clear thought I had at that time, I've got to be very, very careful with Valium because it was magnificent. <laughs> it felt like I was floating. It. <laughs> it felt like I was floating and really? nesting into a fluffy cloud. It was outstanding. <laughs> Um, and well, then, then you can understand how people get addicted to it. Then. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why I've got to be really, yeah. really careful. They are a breaking case of emergency style. Um, and then uh, it, it, 
but like it's good for about five minutes and then I'm asleep. They just put me asleep. So I remember I, had, I was flying from um, Seattle to Detroit in 2016 and I had an anxiety attack on the plane. Too big of an anxiety attack for me to control. So I had a Valium. I woke up in Detroit. Perfect. So it just it, they just knocked me out. Um, and then I woke up in the morning and I felt a lot better. And I haven't gone back to those depths since. It was probably so, your first proper night's sleep you'd had in almost a week, though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then the recovery really began. So I spent another couple of nights in there. Well, another five or six nights. So I left on the Thursday. And then the following Monday, I started my actual proper treatment internally with Victoria Police. So we had this uber awesome psych page. She was brilliant. She run me through um, exposed, uh, prolonged exposure therapy. Um, so to describe that, after we established a relationship, which we did really well, um, uh, she, you, know, you talk through the triggering incident with your eyes open, um, and then she she would say suds, which is your subjective level of distress, one to ten, ten being the worst. Uh, and then yeah, you know, like I got to a six or seven or something. Like I was, you know, heating up, getting quite warm with anxiety, getting a bit emotional, and then got through the story. And she goes, "How'd you find that?" I'm like, "Oh dear, that was awesome, brilliant." So I still had my sense of humour going. So um, is this just talk therapy? Or is she doing anything yes. like EMDR or no, the bl- okay. just pure talk? Okay. And then she said, all right, tell me again, but this time close your eyes. And there, there, there was the trick. So you close your eyes, you shut off one sense, spikes the other senses, and I remembered so much more. And it was like I was transported back to that scene. And Wow. Um, suffice to say, that wasn't overly enjoyable, but I had read a bit about it. And I thought, well, if this is what I've got to do, this is what I've got to do. And again, I'm in just so eternally grateful that, again, for some reason, I'm built to all right, cool, bring it on. It's going to hurt, but you know what? It's got to be done. So I did that a few times and then she said, that's enough, come back next week. And then we'll go back next week and we'll do it again and we'll do it again and do it again. And the theory is, and it worked a treat with me, just takes the power out of the images. Really? Takes the power out of that scene. So if you, if you hated, like really passionately hated horror movies and I come into your house and I put on, the worst horror movie of all time and force you to watch it. The first time you're going to be so uncomfortable, you're going to be squirming and squeaming. You might get emotional. This sucks. I hate this. But by the 20th time I force you to watch it, you've seen it all. You know what happens. It's just boring you now and you have, has no effect on you. So that's, that's, so you're desensitizing yourself to it. Yeah. So, but now like you mentioned EMDR, I've had mates that have done EMDR and it's just brilliant. Yeah. Completely voodoo, but brilliant. There's different ways that you can do it, mm. like with the lights or buzzing and like a vibrational machine and stuff. Yeah. So if, if I was to relapse significantly and all of a sudden that, that day again has enormous power over me, which it did, um, I'd go EMDR immediately. Yeah. So, Have you ever considered or looked into any of the psychedelic treatments that are happening in Mexico? Because a lot of the American uh, vets are starting yes. to do that. Yeah. Yes. I'm not so much in Mexico. I watched a 60 Minutes doco on a on a black, not a doco, a segment on one of the coppers who went to Port Arthur. 
and he was struggling with everything here. He went to San Francisco and they dosed him up on LSD, uh, Eckies, I think, and oh. treated him, whatever it was, and he, he's come back, bang, beauty. It's good to go. I'll flick you through a, a, a podcast that I um, regularly listen to, um, and he's an ex-Navy SEAL, and he went and did it, and they, did it, they do it in Mexico because it's a different form of treatment that they can do compared to the regulations in America. Yep. And, yeah. Awesome. I'll, I'll flick it through to you so you can have a look look at it. And there's you know, medicinal marijuana as well. That's, or cannabis, I should say. That's all sort of starting to come out now, all the studies and that. So there's great hope on the horizon. So to try and get away from the, the, the pharmaceutical stuff and yeah. more naturally, natural-based stuff. One of the things that interests me is that you're still active. You're still an active member of VicPol. Yeah. So how does somebody that has been diagnosed with PTSI, depression and anxiety, which is what you said that you've been diagnosed with, how does one still stay, get that diagnosis, get treatment from command and still stay in the in the force because yeah, so, from a from a layman from an outsider i would have thought as soon as you get that diagnosis you're pretty much pushed out yeah not so much okay. um i i do have friends it depends what level you're at now i'm very careful one of the most toxic things you can do is the uh oh they've got it worse than me because where do you stop yeah what about mara and park kettle that are sitting in back blocks um Oh, it's really bad. I can't remember where Russia are at war with. Ukraine. Ukraine. This is what happens. My brain just forgets really simple stuff. So, like, they haven't done anything wrong all their lives and all of a sudden they've got missiles raining down on them. Like, where do you stop? They've got it worse than me. So, but there are different levels. And, like, I've got mates that, that won't work in any capacity ever again. They are such deeply impacted by post traumatic stress. Now, that's not to say I've got my limitations, which I certainly have. I can't work out in the road anymore. I yeah. can't see, smell, or hear trauma, but I yeah. can read and write it, which is what I do. Um, so that's um, – I've got great support. Uh, like my management um, is incredibly supportive of me. Mm. Uh, and, and there's a really good lesson in that you can have diagnosis with mental health conditions, but you can still live. Yeah. You still do things. You still and can work. still contribute as well. Absolutely, you can still yeah. contribute. And like when you think of oh, I don't know, females are one in three for depression, one in five for anxiety, men are one in five for depression, one in seven for anxiety, or a mixture of those. So overall, one in five Australians, let's say, live with mental health conditions. Mm. I'm not good at maths, but that's probably five million people in Australia that are living with mental health conditions and the vast majority of those are contributing to society or to their to their families in some kind of way. So um, you just got to find what's right for you that fits within your limitations and you're fine. I, like, there's plenty of coppers out there, um, fireys, ambos, nurses, doctors that, you know, that um, you know, have been living with depression, anxiety, PTSD, I, um, OCD, schizophrenia, whatever it might be. You've just got to manage it. That's, um, take the steps like your self-care. And w- one of my favourite sayings is self-care is not selfish. Because if, if I want to be the best person I can be and the best father, the best husband, the best worker, the best friend, the best whatever, I've got to put time into me to make sure I'm at my best 
at any given day. So that means for me, what it looks like in my world, I don't drink. I haven't drank since 2013. Um, I cut down a lot, a lot of junk food. Like I was, I was never take away seven nights a week, but I'm very, I'm, I eat a hell of a lot better. I exercise, I meditate, I practice mindfulness. I engage with my psych. I, I talk about it. You know, if people want to talk, I'll talk to them about it because it's all healthy for me and it keeps me going at a certain level where I'm able to contribute to whatever I need to contribute to. How does it work? And I'm asking this out of interest and a complete naivety. Okay, but how does it work being a police officer where you are carrying a firearm and then have a diagnosis of depression? How does the command then treat that? Because I know that if you you apply for a reg- like for for a shooter's license, for example, it is one of the questions: Do you have uh, anxiety or depression? Mm. Uh, is on the form. So that's where I was coming from in terms of how does it? Yeah. So if. <laughs> If, if you're being treated and you're stable, there's there's no issue with it. Okay. Because it's, um, you know, you, you could make the same, you know, if someone's being treated for, you know, cancer or um, some other, you know, severe sort of medical condition, well, they're going to have all types of different drugs and things going through their systems. Yeah. Is that making them unstable? Do we have to take their firearms off them? Well, yeah. no, they're stable. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's play on. So, but, but if you're look, if I was to walk into work tomorrow or Saturday, if I was to walk in Monday morning saying, oh, I'm, I'm highly suicidal. Yeah. Then they're not going to give me. your fire. Yeah. Well, that would be responsible of them to, to, yeah. 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 But yeah. So if someone comes to work and says, look, I'm struggling a little bit. All right. No worries. Let's get you some help. No worries, and it's, it's certainly not an automatic suspend there. Mm. Um, yeah, the licenses that now we just, don't have to have a firearms license, but we have. Well, there's internal mechanisms that can stop you from getting one. I just wondered what the practicalities of if someone from the force is listening to this, it doesn't necessarily mean the end. No, no, yeah. far from it. Absolutely far from yeah. it, and that's um, like. Again, when I present, and like I said on um, pods before, like I don't care who you speak to, just yeah. speak to someone. Now, be that your own GP, your own psych, or a Victoria Police psych, or a TPAV psych, or an EAP psych, I don't care. You don't have to tell anyone. Even if you want to tell your wife, husband, boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever, I'm, oh, I'm just going to go shopping, I need a new pair of shoes. But in actual fact, you're going to see the psych. I don't care. As long as you're speaking to a psych and you're being treated, that will get you better. You, you just you can't run from this. How has, and I don't even know whether or not allowed is the right word, but how has it been the command has allowed you to be so open about your injury out there in the public? Because you, you are very, vo- which is wonderful. You're very vocal about it. Yeah. You're sort of, um, you know, the face of PTSI in terms of the police force in some respects as well. I mean, you mentioned that you were talking to the command and and thinking about what it was like in regards to that moment in the in the room in terms of the pain. Um. So how is it that you've that you've been allowed to be so vocal and still be, you know? Well, it, it's um, it's the lived experience. Like you can have, and again, this is absolutely no disrespect to the psych industry, but you could get 
you know, 20 people from the public, from the police force, from NAB Bank, from Ernst Young, wherever. And if you put a psychologist in front of them and you talk about, and that, that psych talks about, you have to be careful, this is depression, this is anxiety, this is whatever, they're going to go, okay, cool. They might take a few notes, might understand. But if you put one of their colleagues Home. up there yeah. who talks about their own lived experience, the power is tenfold. Um, so I, and when I talk about command, I'm not talking about the chief commissioner, deputy commissioners. Um, like we, Victoria Police is split up, split up in two different commands. So like crime command, I work in Intel Covert Support Command. So I, the, the presentation I gave a couple of weeks back, um, I, I was as open as what I am here. And my assistant commissioner was sitting in the room and it's, well, th- this is the lived experience. This is what happens if you don't look after yourself. And I'm back, I'm functioning. I'm a valued member of the work unit. I do good work. I train up the new people. Um, and I'm, you know, they're getting their money's worth out of me. And yes, I'm diagnosed. Uh, am I still diagnosable? Don't know. <laughs> I think on some days, absolutely I am. And other days, I'm probably not. And like at the moment, would I be diagnosed with depression? No, I don't think I would be. Yeah. But I'm medicated now. So, but, it, it, and it just, the, the message is really strong in that just be, yes, I, I spent two weeks in hospital, round figures. Yes, I was absolutely down and out, the words you were saying before. But hey, here I am now and I'm back working and I'm fine. So the message is this isn't a life sentence. You can still do stuff. You've what? just got to know your limitations or know what you can and can't do. Well, only, not only... Um, do stuff at work. I mean, you were also involved with a number of charities. Do you want to discuss those? Yeah, so when I was, this stems from hospital, and when I was sitting there, I felt intensely alone. Yeah. And I, I was thinking no one could possibly know what I'm going through, which, again, is complete and utter rubbish, which is my brain was cooked at that stage, so I didn't make that equation. So I thought once I get back to work full time, which is a bluff at that stage because I didn't actually think I would work again, Um I thought I'll start a, a support group for coppers. So when someone's newly diagnosed and they're thinking the same thing, we can go in and say, hey, dude, uh, yeah, no, nah, we've got the club. shoes. Join the club. We've yeah. got a secret handshake. We're, yeah. you know, it's all good. <laughs> um, and then that, 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 you know, that went out to our triple O call takers as well. They're part of it. Like they they've got a hell of a job, like the, the transfer to trauma and stuff for them. Is, well, they're they're actually hearing it from the person at the real time. Yeah. Like that's that's a very heavy job. Oh, and at least we're at the scene. We can see it, and we. And you probably have some level of. I mean, obviously, if you're not a deceased person, but if you're there at a situation, you probably have a sense of being able to at least have an ability to potentially help. Yeah, so some control yeah. over it, whereas they wouldn't. They're just taking a whereas, phone call, hearing the desperation in people's voices. And our operators haven't got that. So mm. they, they are amazing people. They yeah. are absolutely amazing people. And then we um, expand out to you know, paramedics from Ambulance Victoria, basically, and, and professional fireys. And that, by absolutely no means, is disrespectful to our volunteer firefighters. I love them. I reckon they're awesome. But, you know, it was – we had to draw a line somewhere. Yeah. And then – so we'd have – Group meets where you know people would, from the organisations. We this is the code meet. nine. We don't need, need to this name it. This is the code nine yes. foundation. The code nine foundation, yes. Yeah. 
and then um, a mate of mine, and I knew who he was, and we've become pretty close mates. Rob come along, and he had an assistant dog, Jimmy. Yeah. Jim, Jimmy's a superstar. Um, yeah, Rob. Rob's a good bloke, but Jimmy's a superstar. <laughs> well, we like dogs better than yeah, people. He'll probably so listen fine. to this and send me a text and go, "Good on you, dickhead." Um, and then after a while, you know, I was just unbelievably amazed at Jimmy's capabilities. And I was with Rob one day when he uh, when he had an anxiety attack, and I was about to go do what the Nepalese dude did to me, hand gently on the shoulder, which I've done a number of times to friends. Um, and I thought, oh, hang on, that's not my job. He's got a dog. And I watched Jimmy go to work. And then Jimmy's got his own Facebook page, Jimmy, PTSD and me. So I picked up my phone. I'm starting taking photos of Rob Wigan out because he likes having photos taken so he can put it on Jimmy's Facebook page. Wow, okay. So it was a little bit different feeling. One of my good mates is having an anxiety attack and I'm taking photos of him. It's a little bit strange. <laughs> Just recording it now for prosperity. Yeah. Yeah. Keep going, mate. This is good. This is good material for the Facebook page. <laughs> Anything so, for social media these yeah, days, Jesus. Yeah. Tell you what, Mark, it works well. <laughs> um, so him, him, me, and another mate, Ben, um, we were just sitting around one night. We go, well, what, what do you reckon we reg- register as a charity and we'll raise money for assistance dogs? So these three knucklehead coppers that are all diagnosed PTSD started charity, and it's just continued to grow, and it's. Um, yeah, you know, we've sponsored a few assistance dogs. We've got another one coming up shortly. Um, you know, we run a, a a group, a private Facebook group for for members, where it's all about advice and support and absolutely no negativity. I've got nothing for negativity. Um, there's no bashing of the organisations. Got no interest in it. So just pure good peer to peer support. Yeah. Uh, and we run uh, an equivalent one for the partners because the partners have gotten the exceptionally difficult job trying to keep households together yeah um yeah most with kids and they've got to work themselves and they've got a husband or a wife or a partner of some kind and like they're they're just not capable of doing much so you know we've delivered i think upwards near 800 meals not to one person but to heaps of people yeah you know just to take hey let us take the pressure off you for a week we're going to deliver you 20 meals so you don't have to cook for the week and you don't have to do dishes. Where does the uh, name come from, Code 9? What's that code for well, in the police world? Code 9 in police world is police in trouble. In Victoria police right. world, different codes around um, different jurisdictions. But for, hey, for us... There's different codes in different jurisdictions. Well, that makes it bloody confusing, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's like you know, I've gone to scenes you know, in my early years where people have tried to ring 911. You're not in America. You're in Australia. It's triple O. How do you not know that? Cops, bad boys, oh, oh. bad boys. But they just get. They watch so many of these shows. They pick up the phone in trouble and dial nine one one. Does nine one one divert to triple zero in Australia? Because I know that it does I, in some I countries. Don't know. It'd probably be a good idea if it did. Yeah, but I'm not going to bloody yeah, call I, it. To I actually find out. don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I do know that in some countries they do do it because it's yeah. Anyway, triple zero um, people. So yeah, and we've had you know we've taken up looked after some you know like some members their their guards are just out of control and that's causing stress so we we get a gardening company go around and just some little things to help them feel a bit more yeah and and for us that it's easy to do for us and i I was really i was sat on my ass actually quite heavily in a good way um like we one of the first times we organized meals for a partner and we can do that that's easy yeah so we did it and she was just blown away and she's so thankful and it made so much easier. And I'm like, 
well, shit, we're on to something here. I, that, I, 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 I didn't think it was that big a deal, now, but it you, turned out it was. Are you cutting carrots or is this a delivery service? No, nah, delivery service. Okay. Yeah, okay. if, if they want burnt toast, <laughs> I'll do it for them. That's where I was going. I was going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I'm – yeah. I'm, I'm, I can look after myself, but I'm certainly no yeah. chef. Anything Michelin that comes star. out of a teaser Isn't it Michelin with... stars or something? Yeah, Michelin stars, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so look, the foundation – no, no. Well, I do if it's only just me. But you mix a bit of egg in and you make an omelette. That works a treat. My husband loves them. He's like, oh, I'll put some chicken in it. It'll be fine. I'm like, oh, that's not a very nutritious meal, honey. Anyway. No, because no, that's – and well, actually, that that's a really good point. So we don't want them constantly getting McDonald's delivered and things like that because that's not helping anyone. And that's – look, having a you know Big Mac every now and then is not you – know, that's fine. But when it's your stable diet, that's only yeah. making people worse. So let's get some meals delivered. They're good meals nutrition in it um so you know doing other things and we've got a few other things you know in the boil that are just gonna be really exciting stuff and like we're not trying to take over the world um we just we found our niche um you know we're all volunteers no one gets paid um people just chip in here and there and, and get things done and um yeah it's you know it's pretty cool so, how do people how do people keep because you, you it's assistance dogs and it's sort of the odds and sods, like the meals and the gardenings and anything yeah. hands-on that can sort of help. How do people find the charity to donate? Uh, the Code 9 Foundation, if you Googled that, it would come up. So across everything, like say Instagram's at Code9PTSD, 9 being the numeral 9, not letters. Twitter slash Code9PTSD and Facebook slash Code9PTSD. And the most um, important so, one, what was Jimmy's dog's one? Jimmy the dog. Jimmy, PTSD, yeah. and yeah. me. So if you find that on Facebook, give it a like because he's a champion. <laughs> and it look, it does, but it just brings great awareness for the power of these dogs. Yeah. Like, I, I can't specify enough. Like these dogs give, they're not, they're not the magic um, solution. Yeah. But they allow people to get back into the world. Like they, they can go to the supermarket. Like another mate, um, Don, he's got Bernie, the Burmese mountain dog. It's massive. <laughs> but you know what? Don's medication has plummeted because of Bernie. Um, and Rob described, um, there was a, a 7.30 report, did a story on Rob and the foundation a um, couple of years back, and he described um, Jimmy as his Valium. So like Rob used to load up on Valium, and he, he talks about it, but he doesn't hardly do that anymore because he's jimmy jimmy does it jimmy looks well after that's him. scientifically proven that animals in a, in a house yeah um significantly reduce anxiety and depression yeah. in households and another one pat who's got lucy which is another assistance dogs australia dog um pre lucy he had five admissions to mental health clinics since lucy none that's two years are assistance dogs becoming more prevalent in australia they are, um, but there's, to me, there's a there's a bit of grey area. So when I talk assistance dogs, I talk a dog from Assistance Dogs Australia or yeah. Integra. So yeah. and ADA are the I think, and apologies to Integra if they are, like there's Assistance Dogs International. So it's yeah. like your elite brand. I think ADA is the only one aligned with that. 
but then you've got your so those dogs can go everywhere except in the surgery and at yeah you know, uh a um oh no oh you dropped out so they can go everywhere i've got you everywhere apart from surgery <laughs> surgery and a kitchen in a restaurant so they've got licenses there everywhere so similar to a guy guide dog Status. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And in fact, I think a lot of assistance dogs are actually failed guide dogs. Usually they're too food um, obsessed. <laughs> yeah. Get after it. But then you've got, so like I, I say dogs in three categories. So you've got the assistance dog. Yeah. Then you've got my dog, which is a pet. Yeah. Not trained in any way, shape or form, but love. You know, it's great. Yeah. Have fun with it. It's brilliant. Yeah. It just licks everything. <laughs> what breed? And it doesn't. It? It's like a dry, um, a mini schnoodle, and it's like oh, a, mini schnoodle. I want to say like... a drive by shooting, but she'll walk past and just lick your leg as she's walking past. <laughs> oh, what are you doing? Nothing. Just giving you some love, Dad. Yeah. And then there's the middle dog, which is a companion dog. So it's got right. a little bit of training. It can pick up on a couple of things, um, but it's not allowed to go into hospitals or not allowed to go into. It, it, it can't go places, can't go into all places, basically. Now, so it's a step under the assistance dog. The reason why I'm asking this <coughs> is that you see on um, YouTube all these people having assistant dogs and they're getting asked for evidence that it's an assistance dog um, yeah. and they're saying that they don't require it. Does it require any form of identification It's an assistance dog in Australia? Uh, Rob has a card. Right. Um, so it's. I Is think it it's printed kind of like out on license. his home printer and laminated at home? <laughs> Let me just get on the Photoshop <laughs> and do up a little form here. No, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure because I know Rob did some time ago, um, a taxi refused to take him and he was he, he said he did show proof that Jimmy was a um, accredited dog. And it's like the, the jacket. It's you know, yeah. ADA jacket and things like that. So, but the, the, I know there are a lot of people who um, call their dogs assistance dogs. But me, this is my opinion. They're not. They're companion dogs. They haven't gone through the training of an ADA level yeah. dog or an Integra level dog. I know that for like the guide dogs and stuff, and I know this because my dad's actually eligible for a guide dog, but he hasn't got one yet. Um, it's about twenty grand's worth of training to get. Yeah. A guide dog to yep. the point of being able to assist. Yeah, mm. exactly. They're expensive. ADA dogs are forty. So, and I'm. I'm or maybe I'm under undervaluing the bloody guide I, dogs. I'm yeah. certainly not saying <laughs> guide dogs aren't much chop. That's for sure. Oh, I'm they probably, are incredible. Someone's probably going to fact check me. It's probably a hundred grand or some bullshit. <laughs> but the but when you want that elite level dog, yeah. be it a guide dog or a, a, a proper assistance dog then they are. That's what it costs because yeah. the amount of training, training. And we're not, you know, the trainers, like when another mate, Stewie, got Frankie from ADA. Um, so one of the trainers, Katie from ADA, come, came down and lived with Stewie for a week to help bed in Frankie to the, um, to wow. the house. And just saying to Stewie, yes, you can do that. No, you can't do that. This, that, next thing. And it was we were having a group meet just happened to be that week so katie came along and three hours we just smashed her with questions it was awesome she must have been knackered she would have been (laughs) but what was absolutely evident was how elite she was in dog training yeah 
So that, that's, you know, when we talk about if you want a really good personal trainer, an elite level, you've got to pay the coin because yeah. of their education and their abilities. This is where these dogs are so valuable because the, the trainers that ADA have got and Integra and things, they are elite. So that's why it costs so much. But then again, you know, these dogs save lives. So worth every every cent, many Did, times over. 23 years, is my maths correct now on the force? 26 this 26. year. 26, my maths is terrible. Mm, um, I'm no good at maths. <laughs> 26 years in now. Yes. What does, what's sort of next for Mark? Are you staying in? Are you going to be yeah, 30 yeah. years, 40 years? Uh, 36, be I reckon. One of the chief commissioners. No. <laughs> Do you want to get no, political? I'm, I'm about Come on, Mark. Out. It's an apolitical I'm, organization, I'm sure. Yes, yes. <laughs> no, I, um, just the way, and, and this is an acceptance thing for me as well. Like I, my concentration isn't overly good. My memory is poor. Um, I'm happy with what I'm doing now. I'll probably remain a sergeant for the rest of my career. Um, I think I've got probably about 10 years, yep. 10 years left. So um, retire at 60. Um, and all things being equal, if I can do retire on my own terms, that'll be great. Uh, and then, um, yeah, we'll see what happens. I, I, I just, I've got no expectations. Um, I'm not absolutely saying I am going to retire at 60 and this is the day. I, I, because I don't know, because, you know, in, in three weeks time, I could plummet again and that could be it for me. I'm just not capable of working anymore. So, you know what? I just take it. I'm not a day at a time. I, you know, I take plan it as it ahead. Comes. Yeah. Yeah. It takes as it comes and, you know, I'm, I've still got a lot of recovery to do. I've still got a lot of learning to do. Um, a, a mate of mine, Tristan, just a genius bloke, I'll never forget him saying to me, always a student. And I've just gone. Every day's a oh, learning day. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I'm always a student. I'm I'm forever learning about, I'm learning stuff about me, even though I've been, you know, living this diagnosed journey for, you know, coming up a decade and I've been living a, mental health journey for 20 years coming up 20 years um you know i'm learning so much and you know the foundation is so much to do with that but that's you know we do it when we can and i, I love work i love my job i have a ball um you know i've got growing kids um you know coaching me lad in cricket and you know I go out for tea most thursday nights with my daughter for a different type of meal each week from a different part of the world daddy and- daughter day yeah, yeah. Love that. She's absolutely gone nuts on Indian. She just wants Indian now. She <laughs> reckons it's the best ever. Um, you know, planning trips and, you know, so, you know, and that's all still part of the recovery process. You know, like I, I catch myself when I'm just, um, you know, not being mindful or, you know, I know, geez, I haven't, you know, my meditation's been crap of late. I haven't been doing it. Like, why? What's the excuse? So, okay, let, let's start doing it again. Or, you know, your diet's been pretty crap lately. So then I'll try and work out why there'll be a, there'll, there'll always be a why I'm not doing something and, and learn from that why yeah. and try and not make the same mistakes. What's the so, goal with the uh, Code 9 Foundation? Do you want to stay niche or do you want to grow it nationally? Uh, we'll stay niche at the moment um, because it, like, it takes up a fair amount of time for all of us and yeah. we're all, um, you know, we're all volunteers. Um, but, 
we've got members from other states that are part of the, the, the internal group, but a formal sort of like branch in another state, I can't see that happening for a fair while, if ever. Yeah. You know, like I, I just... Um, are you just focused on active members or do you do vet? Like- no, no, for veterans as well. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah. So, so are you linked in with David? Yes. You are? Yes. That's yes. for the Victorian Police Veterans. Yeah, um, Police Veterans Victoria, yeah. yes. Thank you for the so correct I'm, I'm about, terminology. I'm about due to catch up with him to have, have a bit of a chat. He's so lovely. Uh, yeah, he's awesome. Mm. Awesome. Um, so, yeah, it, it's about how can we impact our members the, the most with the with, with what we've got. Obviously, the charity dollar is hard to come by. Yeah. Um, and we're com- look, we compete against organisations that got millions of dollars in government grants, which makes it very difficult. But you know what? It's to me, it's not a competition. And just do what you can do. And if we can positively impact some members, well, then it's all worth it. Yeah. And. You know, like just touching on the veterans, there's a, there's a saying, there's nothing more X than an X. And I I hate that saying um, passionately because we are a different breed of people. Um, and just like the military, they're a different breed of people. What they see, what they go through, what we see, what we go through, nurses and doctors in emergency wards. Jesus, how's the last few years been for you? Um, you know, like we're different types of people. And if you can create a community where you are speaking and, you know, mixing with your people, it's very comforting. It's very um, knowing you're not alone, uh, knowing you're still thought of is extremely powerful. Yes, absolutely have your relationships um, and social contacts with people that have never been coppers. Must do it because you've got to get out. You've got to get away from policing because the more you spend talking about policing and being police and things, your identity, you lose your identity and you be, your identity is a copper and that's that's not what it should be. So you've got to shed that identity and have two identities. You're one at work and you're one at home and you have the social connections. So you really, you really do need to have like a split personality in terms of being on Pretty and much. off the job. Yep, yep. Huh. Okay. Yeah, and the the loss of identity. So for the, and this is massive in first responders worldwide and military worldwide. When you leave those organisations, if so many people become what they were their job, when they leave, they lose their identity, and that is real dangerous, that dangerous transition. stuff. Does the police uh, force have anything to help people transition to to civvy world? Uh, we've got guides and things like that, but ultimately it's it's going to be up to the person. Right. Um, it's and a lot of things like Victoria Police has got all the resources there. Um, we've got psychs, we've got you know welfare, we've got you know a sports kind of unit for dietitians and things like that. But and this is you know one thing with mental recovery from mental health conditions and learning to live with them, you have to do it. The unicorn with the ferry isn't going to fly overhead and sprinkle magic dust on you. No magic ones. Unfortunately. <laughs> no magic ones. <laughs> it doesn't happen. It may happen somewhere, but it's not happening here. So you have to take control. You have to do it. Um, and sitting back 
Um, if you think you've been mistreated or whatever, okay, understand that's enormously damaging, but you need to find a way to get past that and you need to take control of your own health because, you know, anyone can tell you, you know, you can have the best personal trainer, a personal chef, um, a sleep doctor, a psychiatrist. You could have all these resources around you, but until you engage and you talk and you understand and you act on it, things are going to be hard. Mm. You've got to put yourself out there. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been such a pleasure chatting to you. Anybody that's having any mental health issues or that they think they might be struggling or whatever, it started with sleep pattern disturbances with Mark was the first obvious thing and it escalated. So if you think that you are struggling, talk to a professional. Thanks, Mark. Correct. My pleasure. Everyone thank jump you. onto Code 9 Foundation and donate. That's all I've got to say. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 